uh, concerns or interest of Foka here is how how can the how can archaeology uh, enlighten or confirm um, the story, especially of the Old Testament, uh, because there are so many skeptics, and uh, we can actually use archaeology to point people to some some uh, some evidence here. Right. Yeah. So we move on. This is a preparation <coughs> for this afternoon. Mm. You're the first group who've ever had this introduction before Ooh. we go to the museum. Which yeah. means the museum will be a lot more benefit for you uh, because you always already know something. Yeah. Fine. So yeah. So you should have the handouts. We're also going to send them around electronically yeah. uh, as well. So you've got the copy of my PowerPoint. You'll get them photos on, uh, there. on email. And before this, the, before this afternoon, I will send you also an, another email with a pamphlet for the museum visit. Because she doesn't have the. Yeah. Hun som är guiden var i museet. De har lagt en egen broschyre, och hon hade inte nog igen av de i papper. Så där får han alla tillsatt elektronisk kan se se på mobilderas. Vi ska lasta ner för dig igår. Vi ska sörja för att få sänt en till dig för de är på museet. Så någon får papperversionen, andra kan inte bara följa med på mobilen och. Ja. Okej. Grand. So I'm going to look at archaeological evidence both for biblical history, a little bit of New Testament, but mainly Old Testament, and as it says here, for fulfilled prophecy. So just to start us off with, I just want to illustrate something about probability, because probability features heavily in arguments about fulfilled prophecy. So I have here a, a four-dial uh, um, padlock. Each of these dials has ten different positions, zero and one to nine. So here it is, locked. Now, if I do this, and I open the padlock, how many people, how many people think I was really lucky? <laughs> how many people think I knew the combination? Right. I have here, let me jumble that one up, four padlocks, each with a different combination. Let me hand these out. Um, try your hand uh, during the course of this afternoon of seeing how many of these padlocks you managed to open mm -hmm. between you. Um, I'm betting no more than one, probably not one. I'll come back to that. I'll also, to encourage you post lunch in a hot afternoon. Let me hand out these typical English to eat with coffee after eight mint snacks. Uh, you can uh, pass them around to your fellows and have a little nibble as we uh, go on. A nibble. <laughs> so the biblical uh, timeline here, all the way from uh, Genesis, early days as it says here, all the way through the uh, Old Testament, various books of the Bible and their sort of historical positioning put here, uh, all the way through to uh, the uh, split between AD, B, BC and AD, which a medieval monk calculated wrong. Uh, so Jesus ends up being born about 5 or 6 BC. Uh, all the way through to the important date of 70 AD, which was when the Romans uh, finally had enough of the Jews who rebelled and they conquered uh, Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and uh, kicked the Jews out 
uh, and so on. I'm going to focus mainly on this Old Testament period here, and indeed mainly on this second sort of half of the Old Testament period, but I will do some New Testament stuff as well. Biblically, uh, geography, uh, we have here, here's, here's Israel, so bang in the Middle East. You start out with uh, Abraham uh, over uh, here. Uh, Abraham makes a journey through uh, Babylon and Mesopotamia into, they come into Israel. And then you have the time of going when there's a famine, the family go into Egypt where there's food, and then you have the uh, Egyptian captivity. Then the children of Israel in the Exodus come, come out, back out of Egypt, wandering through uh, somewhere around here, and end up back uh, in Israel, the, 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 the conquering of the Canaanites and so on. And then later on, you get the Exodus, uh, uh, exodus from um, Israel uh, in the captivity uh, in Babylon, uh, and books like the book of Daniel particularly talk about that, of course. And then after a while, uh, the exodus of Babylon comes to an end and the children of Israel come back to Israel and you have uh, books like Nehemiah describing what happens when they come back to Israel and start rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and so on. Uh, then we have a bit of a gap of history of about 500 years between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, which of course all happens within Israel. Uh, and then in the New Testament times, the message of the gospel starts spreading out, and particularly you get the missionary journeys of Paul, who eventually ends up all the way up in Rome, uh, in Italy, at the end of the book of Acts. So those are the sort of main movements of the, the biblical uh, history from the patriarchs through to the early church. Now, we only have a very limited access to the past... And we access that past through the known chain of its effects. And of course the past has many more effects than we know about. So for, to illustrate this, uh, of 142 books of Roman history written by Livy, only 35 of those books have survived to today. We have 35 out of 142 books of Roman history from Livy. Um, only four and a half books of the 14 books written by the Roman historian Tacitus, his history, have survived. And they survive in two, two manuscripts that date from the 9th and the 11th century. Uh, and yet classical historians, historians of the Greco-Roman period and so on, that's the kind of literary historical information that classical historians use uh, to make careful judgments about what actually happened in the past. Um, you start with the information that survives and you try and um, work out what's reliable, what's not. Um, do they both talk about an event that happened independently of one another? That gives you more of an indication that that probably was something that happened rather than something that just someone made up and so on, if you have multiple witnesses and so on. So, as even the, the New Atheist author Victor Stenger puts it, he says, an absence of evidence for something in history, or anywhere else, an absence of evidence, is evidence of absence, evidence that something is not true, or didn't happen, only when the evidence should be there and it's not. 
uh, many critics of the Bible over, over the history have said things like, look, the Bible mentions uh, the Canaanites. The Bible's the only document that we have from the ancient world that, that mentions the Canaanites. Um, there's no extra-biblical evidence that the Canaanites existed. So it's probably just something the Bible authors just made up. Which is all well and good until an archaeologist digs up something from the Canaanites. <laughs> and they turn up. Um, you can't use the fact that we haven't got a bit of evidence that something in the Bible happened as evidence that it didn't happen unless it, it's very likely that if that thing did happen, we would have evidence from outside the Bible. But as shown by the example of the Roman histories, not everything from history survives. It's not surprising that we have a very patchy access to the past. Uh, and so arguments based on an absence of evidence are very uh, shaky and things to be wary of. And why isn't it good enough, anyway, that the Bible, which is a historical source, when you're looking at historical texts, mentions something? Shouldn't that be just as good as Tacitus mentioning something, at least, as it were? So be wary of arguments that depend upon a, an absence of evidence, because the question is, well, how likely is it that if that event really had happened, we would expect to have found some evidence of it all these years later. Just a word on the debate uh, between so-called biblical minimalists and maximalists. A quote from theologian Michael Heiser, who says, for those unfamiliar with the, the minimalist versus maximalist debate over biblical archaeology, uh, the former, the, the, the minimalists, basically believe that the Old Testament has little or no historical value. It was entirely written during or after the, the Babylonian exile. So they'll say these stories about the, the Egyptian exodus and, and so on, those were kind of made up during the period of the Babylonian exile to give people hope that they would eventually return to Jerusalem. something Because it's a story about coming out of exile and so on. So it's just propaganda. Basically, and they'll, they tend to date the biblical books later than other scholars do, and so on. Maximists, on the other hand, disagree with that minimalist position to varying degrees. Well, as he says, on a continuum of optimism about the text as a historical source. But there's this, this basic divide between the minimalists who say things like, uh, there probably wasn't a King David, and even if there was, he was probably just a little petty tribal chieftain. And later authors, in the time of the exile, made up sto folk stories about him to give the Israelite people a sense of, of uh, cultural worth and history and, and hope for the future. Whereas the maximalists tend to say, no, there was a King David, and, and he had a kingdom, and it was at this earlier time, and the records we have about him were written before the Babylonian exile, as they claim to be, and so on. Yeah. Yes, uh, I think there, there has been a series, well, just recently, is it on BBC, at least here in England, mm. and it's an, uh, the, uh, an atheist theologian mm. who's doing a series on archaeology, and she is consistently taking the position of the minimalist. Yeah. So she, it, it seems kind of an agenda there. Is, yeah. is that a popular series? Or, or, uh, uh, yeah, uh, it's a sort of fairly highbrow, but yes, yeah. pop, pop, you know, populist in as much yeah. as it was archaeology on television. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 
uh, and she did a did did some sort of Sunday morning talk shows on telly and uh, and so on. Um, but there's an agenda there and a one-sidedness to the presentation at, at, at least. It's all I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're going to get a one-sided presentation from me because I'm in the maximalist uh, camp. Uh, but I've at least made you aware there are these, these camps, and as with many of the debates, it often goes back to what assumptions people are making. If you make the assumption, you know, there isn't really a God and miracles can't really happen and so on, and so stories about a miraculous exodus and so on, well, that couldn't have happened like it says it did. So how did it happen? Did it even happen? Uh, and so on. Um, but um, the root of the discussion is more in the philosophy than it is actually to do with the archaeology. Um, because, I mean, at most archaeologists will say, you know, we haven't found any archaeological evidence uh, of this big exodus of people coming out of Egypt. But the question is, well, how likely is it that all these years later we would have found any evidence that they may have left behind? During, do we know exactly what route they took? Are we sure we've dug in the right places? How much have we dug? What percentage of the, of the area that they may have gone through have we looked at, etc.? And you have to ask these questions. So we do live in an age of rather uninformed claims, particularly when you come to the New Testament, right? New, new atheist authors like Richard Dawkins and Stenger and Dan Brown and so on um, will say things like the Gospels are just works of fiction. They're not their biographies. Uh, Jesus probably didn't exist. Or there's a good case to be made that he didn't, although they begrudgingly admit that he probably did. Something like this. <laughs> Uh, or the, the idea of a divine Jesus was an invention decided upon at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, according to one of Dan Brown's characters in his, his novel The Da Vinci Code. That is a load of, um, let's use the English phrase, baloney. A load of baloney. Um, and archaeology, I've, I've written, you can find some stuff online. I've uh, published a, a downloadable article from the Christian Evidence Society and a Christianity Today magazine article on this stuff where looking at places in the New Testament where the archaeology tells us information. It can tell us information about places that are mentioned, cities to villages, uh, about people that are mentioned, even down to their family relationships sometimes, their official job titles and so on, and also the culture, particularly the beliefs that people had during that, that time period. And let me just give you briefly one example from each of these areas, starting with places. So for a long time, particularly on the internet, you can find sceptical sites saying um, the story about Jesus being born in Bethlehem, uh, it was made up. That's not historical. Um, we have no records of Bethlehem existing until well after uh, the time of the gospel stories. It probably didn't exist. An argument from an absence of evidence. Lo and behold, fairly recently in 2012, um, this, uh, this is an enlarged picture. What it actually is, is a little um, bit of clay with a stamp on it. It's about the size of a coin, like a 5p piece or something. And it's uh, to do with a trade goods being sent to the temple in Jerusalem from Bethlehem. <laughs> and this stamp dates from the, the second temple period, the period of the New Testament. Uh, so uh, Eli Sukron. Uh, Israeli uh, archaeologists find seal that mentions Bethlehem is the article. Uh, this Israeli archaeologist says, here we can read the word Bethlehem in a clear Hebrew inscription from the first, sorry, the first temple period uh, on a, a bula, this, this stamp found in Israel that arrived 
from Bethlehem to Jerusalem, maybe to about paying taxes on, on goods. Um, this is the Bethlehem next to Jerusalem referred to in the Bible. He says, so here we have evidence from just from before the biblical period that, that Bethlehem existed. So you've got evidence from before and after, and it's mentioned in the New Testament. So odds on, um, it was still existing and continued to exist. Uh, that would be the simplest explanation of that. So again, an, an argument from an absence of evidence gets undermined by stumbling across this tiny little bit of, of clay with a, an impression on it. Uh, first temple and second temple period. Mm. The first temple is the temple of Solomon from around 1000. Of course, that was a rebuilt uh, mm. around five, uh, four, five hundred when they returned. After the Babylonian period. Yep. The second temple is the temple of Herod, Jesus' time. That is the main division of uh, yeah. Israeli archaeology. Yeah. What about people? Here's a fascinating recent uh, find. It was controversial when it was first found because it was one of these bits of archaeology that wasn't dug up in an archaeological dig. It was something that had been uh, put into the antiques market, as many of these things are, uh, and so you can't track down very easily what's called the provenance of where it came from in this dig at this time and so on. And that made it a bit controversial, and there were people who said, oh, it's a forgery, and actually it, the Israeli uh, Antiquities Society took the antiques dealer to court, charging him with fraud, uh, and then their court case completely collapsed, and all of the witnesses that they called in the court case to show that this thing was a fraud actually ended up saying that no, it was probably genuine. And um, since that court case, which is clapped and, and um, uh, not convicted, uh, uh, the, the guy involved, also there's been, um, I'll give you reference in the background materials, there's been a, a scientist looking at, from, it, from a sort of looking at the, uh, the geology of the stone. Uh, and the, uh, the weathering of the stone and the microfossils in the stone and so on have shown that not only is this a genuine ancient, what's called an ossuary or a bone box that you would put the bones of a deceased person in uh, for their second burial, which is something they did during this uh, historical period of the New Testament, but the inscription that you can just about make up here, which I've got up here, the inscription that says, Yachob Bach Yosef Achad Yeshua, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus, is all ancient. There was some debate about whether someone had put brother of Jesus on the end, uh, forged that end of the new bit, but the, uh, the science has shown that the, the microfossils and the patinin thing goes through the whole of the inscription and that this uh, very likely is indeed the burial box of St. James, who was stoned to death. Um, the James, who was martyred in AD 62. This box dates from the mid-first century, so about the right time period. A mere 29 years after Jesus' uh, crucifixion. Uh, and looking at the statistics that we know about names of people in Jerusalem, a statistician looking at it says the, the, the likelihood of those three names in that combination means that it probably is the, the James and Jesus and Joseph that we know from the New Testament. You don't normally put the name of your brother no. on your phone box, on your coffin. That's an unusual feature. and you, you would only put the name of your brother if he was a particularly sort of famous person as well. That's another clue there. Or culture. 
Uh, let's go back to Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code and Professor T being saying Jesus' establishment of the Son of God as divine was officially proposed and voted on by the Council of Nicaea. He doesn't know his history here, this character. So he's dating the idea that Jesus was divine as a result of a vote at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. Okay? Well, here's what's called the Aminos Graffito. It's a bit of graffiti, as we say in English, uh, dating to about AD 200, so over 100 years before the Council of Nicaea, 135 years before, something like that. And we have a figure on a cross being crucified, a man on the cross with a donkey's head. He's made, what an ass he's made of himself here. This guy who is looking at the figure on the cross with a hand raised, and the writing here says something like, you could translate it as Alex Aminos worships his God, or Alex Aminos, worship your God. Um, who do we know who got themselves crucified, who might have been worshipped by a Roman soldier in about AD 200? Uh, and of course, what, do you, what sort of being do you worship? Your God. He says, you worship your God. So he's making, the guy who drew this is making fun of a fellow soldier who worships this crucified man as a god. I submit to you that's probably talking about Jesus. And someone uh, over 100 years before the Council of Nicaea at least thought that you should think of Jesus as a, as a god, as a divine figure. Perhaps even more specifically... Here is a find from the uh, Christian Prayer Hall or Church in Megiddo, discovered in 2005, dating to about 230 AD, so still about 100 years before the Council of Nicaea. And they found this is a reconstruction of what the prayer hall looked like with a communion table in the middle. And there are some um, uh, pictures in um, mosaics uh, around the table. And there's interesting things uh, on the left there, but particularly on the right here, this inscription, which will give you a close-up of this inscription here, uh, this in Greek, uh, says, the God-loving Akeptus has offered the table, so it's about, you know, like we put in, ch in church, you know, so-and-so family paid for this pew, you know, this window dedicated by so-and-so, and the table dedicated, uh, offered the table to God Jesus Christ as a memorial. Uh, to, the, to the God Jesus Christ. So there, in black and white, is the word, in words, there's an inscription saying uh, that Christians gathering around a communion table uh, in the third uh, century considering Jesus as divine. Uh, so we can just show from the archaeology alone that uh, the idea that nobody you know, really thought of Jesus as divine until the Council of Nicaea is just plain wrong. Um, by over a century. <laughs> Archaeology can also give us evidence of events. And this is where it starts getting interesting looking at uh, biblical prophecy and the idea of fulfilled prophecy. And what I call, um, there's a whole area of messianic prophecy, which I wrote about in a book called Understanding Jesus some years ago. I'm going to leave that to one side and look at what I call city prophecies. Prophecies about the fate of particular cities. So in Mark... 13, uh, and I would date Mark to about uh, AD 49, but that's fairly early as a dating and a bit controversial, but that's what I do. Uh, anyway, we records uh, Jesus uh, leaving the temple 
one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones. This is a CGI reconstruction of uh, Jerusalem, second period temple, the Herodian temple. What massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. So it's a prediction. It's not like the sort of prediction you read in your astrology chart in the magazine. You might meet a tall, dark stranger. It's fairly specific. It gives a time period on it. It says the buildings will be destroyed. Uh, not one stone will be left on another. All the stones will be thrown down. This will happen within a generation of the time that I'm saying this to you. Well, here's the second temple from about 516 to AD 70. And here it is today. The, the Dome of the Rock uh, Muslim uh, mosque on there. But you can see that none of the buildings from the second temple survived today. And that's because the Romans came and destroyed it in AD 70 when there was a Jewish rebellion. Now, as the philosopher of science Karl Popper put it, uh, confirmations of your theory, you have a scientific theory and you go looking for evidence to confirm that theory, they should count only if they're the result of a risky prediction. This is why no one is impressed when I say, later on today you may meet a tall, dark stranger, because that's not a very risky prediction. <laughs> it's quite likely that you will meet a tall, dark stranger later today. Um, when you do, notice uh, that you have done it. So you need a risky prediction. Well, I submit that predicting uh, in Jesus' day, around AD 30-ish, that within a generation the temple would be utterly destroyed, not one stone on another, them all thrown down, etc., was quite a risky prediction. And here's an illustration of why it's risky. Um, compare the Temple Mount in Jerusalem uh, with the Acropolis in Athens. If in AD 30 I had been at the Parthenon, and you can see the Elgin marbles from the Parthenon in the British Museum later, if you like. Um, I had, in AD 30, pointed to the Parthenon and said, within a generation, not one stone will be left on another. They shall all be thrown down from the mount. Blah, blah, blah. You know, I would have been wrong. <laughs> see? Um, this, was even, this was used as a gunpowder storage facility during a, a war between the Greeks and the Turks and it got hit by a shell and the gunpowder all exploded. <laughs> it's still there! <laughs> the Temple Mount is still there. The various temples. The Temple of Nike is still there. Uh, and so on. So, it's, you know, you can't just point to any old temple complex in the ancient world and predict that it's going to be destroyed within a generation in a particular way. It's a risky prediction. So that makes it a bit more impressive when you get it right. As Jesus did in AD 70, Titus destroys, he's the general, destroys the Jerusalem temple. Here you see the, his Titus's triumph arch in Rome. And here are the Roman soldiers carrying away this Jewish candlestick uh, from the temple and so on. We're told... The, the mar marble arch is actually an attempted uh, model on this... Uh, yeah. Well, so the arch place here. Yeah, it's uh, modelled after. Yeah. At a distance, the, the temple looked literally like a mount of snow, white marble, fretted with golden pin pinnacles. It had a lot of this gold leaf work on it. And 
when the uh, Jewish rebels finally hold up in the temple, which is why the, the Romans took over the temple, defeated them, uh, somehow it caught fire. A fire was set. Uh, and that fire caused all the gold fittings and gold ornaments and things in the temple to melt. The melting point of gold is not all that high. And the gold dripped into the stonework <coughs> of the temple. And so wanting the, the booty, the loot from the conquest, the Roman soldiers wanted to get the gold, you know, part of their payment for a good job done. So they needed to separate all of the stonework to get at the gold. And as they were going through this process of separating the stones to get the gold, they just chucked the stones over the side of the Temple Mount. Uh, here we see today the Temple Mount. And you can see at the bottom of the Temple Mount, in one particular side of it here, the stonework from the temple buildings that have been dropped down down the side here. And particularly this next picture, someone standing next to one of the stones, you can see the size of the stones, those stone blocks. So when the disciples are saying, see what massive stone blocks these are, what, what real strong permanent seeming buildings these are, how astonishing it is for Jesus to say, yeah, it's all going to fall over. <laughs> It'll all be gone. You know. <laughs> not stone on top. Yeah, not one stone on top of another. They should all be thrown down and so on. This is what I call Jesus' run for the hills prophecy. Uh, in Luke, dating around AD 61, uh, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that its desolation has come near. Those in Judea must flee to the mountains, flee to a safe place. Uh, those inside the city must leave it. Those who are in the country must not enter it because these days of vengeance to fulfill all things that are written. But also in Mark 13, we have when you see the abomination that causes desolation, quote unquote, standing where he or it does not belong, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. In other words, there seems to be two prophecies here about the invasion of Jerusalem. Number one, when you see armies coming to surround Jerusalem, you better get out of there to somewhere safe. Number two, when you see the, the thing that causes desolation standing where he shouldn't, you better get the heck out of there. It's really important that you get out of there. Now, once they took over the temple, there was a lull in fighting. Partly because maybe they're getting the, the loot from the temple and so on. There was a pause in the fighting. They, they conquered the rebels and so on. But they still had the city. And after that pause, the Roman soldiers went on to go through the whole city slaughtering the Jews who were holed up there. It was, so there was a pause, but Jesus is saying it's really important that you get out. And now, I, think, I think, thinking of the Jewish history, the real believing Jews would think of God who would protect the city. Now, Jesus is saying this city and this temple is going to fall completely down, which is extremely radical, both theologically and historically. Yeah. Yeah. Now, some commentators link this phrase about the thing that causes desolation to the events of AD 70, when Titus, having forced his way into the temple sanctuary, his soldiers set up their Roman standards in the temple. What's the uh, They're sort of like, like the, the flag of the unit, but they had these sort of poles with little idols on, as the Jews would have considered them, like the, the company standard. 
um, which the Jews would have thought of as, as idols being put in the temple. Uh, and then they, uh, they sacrificed the, to those idols, to the standards, and they proclaimed Titus emperor uh, in uh, the temple precincts. And some people have said, well, maybe that's what is meant by the, the thing that causes desolation, the, the sort of sacrilege of the temple by these pagan uh, idols and pagan goings-on. However, theologian Robert Stein, in his excellent book on the topic, uh, but he says that this was too late to serve as a sign to flee Jerusalem. Because it's after the siege when flight, flight was no longer possible. Once the, ar- the armies have come round Jerusalem, how on earth are you going to flee? Jesus has told you to flee, but you can't do that once, once Jerusalem has been surrounded and taken, surely. Aha, ha, archaeology to the rescue. Uh, Jewish um, professor Norman Golb notes that there are underground passages in Jerusalem which enabled many inhabitants to exit the city and flee both south to Masada and file the Nahi Kidron and other wadis uh, heading from Jerusalem eastward towards the Dead Sea. Particularly recently, they found the, the main sewage drainage channel, an underground sewer in Jerusalem that leads all the way from the temple all the way down to the uh, Shiloa pool, which connects to uh, Hezekiah's tunnel. Um, which we might mention uh, later, which brings water from the spring outside the city into the city. So if you know your underground tunnels in Jerusalem, you can get out. (laughs) And indeed, this Jewish professor says people did. And indeed, if you look at Josephus' Jewish War, he mentions these underground tunnels in Jewish War. And he even mentions a captain of the rebels who'd been a captain uh, during the siege, in the siege, who the the Romans ended up fighting later outside of Jerusalem because he had escaped through certain underground chambers. Uh, So it was possible to get out of Jerusalem, and indeed we have historical records of people doing it from outside of the New Testament. So note that what we call the specificity of these predictions. Within a generation, no stone on another, stones thrown down, flight most urgent after the desecration of the temple and that there would be an opportunity to do so. All confirmed from the extra-biblical, historical and archaeological record. Now, back of the envelope calculation, if we assigned a 1 in 10 probability to each of those bits of the prophecy... Because you don't add, you multiply probabilities, you get an exponential growth, that would be an unlikeliness of one chance in 10,000 that Jesus got those four bits of prophecy right just by luck. So, and that's the same odds as one of you being able to open one of these, one of these padlocks that I've handed around. Because there's four one in ten chances. Okay. Now, when you saw me open that padlock, you immediately thought, oh, he knew the combination, not, oh, he got lucky. So when Jesus says these four things that are specific and so on, should you think, oh, he got lucky? Or should you think, oh, he knew what he was talking about? We'll come back to that. Yeah. Uh, But this would only be uh, true if you had an uh, early dating of the testament. Yes. Uh, but I guess there's also people who say uh, there's an uh, 
late dating of the Testament then that these words are put in the mouth of Jesus and not him saying it. So why right. do they um, the Testament to 49, as yeah. we Yeah, so that is absolutely right. And I would say you have to look at the, the evidence for the dating and you have to avoid begging the question against an early date by saying this. Miracles such as fulfilled prophecy can't happen. Here's a fulfilled prophecy, it looks like. Therefore, it must have been written after the event. So we must date it later and ignore any of the evidence, literary, historical, etc., that would put an earlier than 70 AD date on, say, the Gospel of Mark. So some <laughs> historians argue that way. Yeah. Because this looks like something that really happened, it must have been written afterwards. That's the main argument for a late date. That's the argument. But it begs the question. And if you don't beg the question, I think the weight of evidence is for an early earlier than AD 70, certainly date. Now, my AD 49 for Mark is a bit extreme on the conservative side, I admit. But I, I've got arguments for that in my book, Understanding Jesus. But it's entirely mainstream within New Testament studies to, say, date Mark to the mid-60s, which is still before 70 AD. Um, but yeah, you have to, that's absolutely right. So um, here's a very long combination lock that we'll come back to. Uh, four dials of one, one in ten each is ten to the four. One in ten times ten times ten times ten goes one ten to the four. One in ten thousand, which is the same as getting money out of a hole in the wall machine with your four-digit pin number or opening one of those locks. So let's go back to the uh, Old Testament time chart, this time the one that you have in your packs. This is focusing down from the previous chart. Now we're looking from the, the patriarchal history up to before the end of the, the end of the Old Testament, this way to Jesus in about 6 BC over here. And we'll look mainly at the second half because um, there is stuff I can say about the earlier history, but there's less. Because the further back in time you go, the less things survive. Because they've had longer to be destroyed, be lost, be built on, so you'll never dig it up because someone doesn't want you digging up their temple in order to find it. And people tend to build things on top of things, reuse the stones, all of that kind of historical contingency means we have a very patchy access to the past and it gets thinner and patchier the further back you go. And that's not surprising. Um, but let's start with, say, King David, uh, 10, 000, uh, 1000 BC. About the same, uh, we had the mention that the minimalists would sort of say there wasn't a King David or he was only a little tribal chieftain or whatever. Um, I can go further into that, but at least on the, his existence, uh, since uh, the sort of 19th to 20th centuries, uh, we've got, again, extra biblical archaeological inscriptions. Uh, this one's called the Tel Dan Stele from uh, sort of 8th, 9th century BC, and the King Misha Stele from, again, the 9th century BC. Um, so that's about 100 years after the time of David, uh, talking about the house of David. Um, the Misha Stile also, also talks about Israel and talks about the house of David. House of David would be, would be the kingdom or um, the line of descendants. Uh, yeah, yeah. So um, that is, you know, he's a prominent figure. 
um, is associated with Israel, uh, the house of David, and of course the Bible talks about the house of David. It's like, like us talking about our royalties, we would say the house of Windsor. And that's how you, you refer to the, the royal family, the royal lineage. Uh, Jesus the Messiah will come from the, the, the branch of Jesse through the house of David and the tribe of whatever and so on. Now, this is something you'll see in the British Museum. The, I love the name of this. This is so evocative. This is the Black Obelisk of Shalomanser the Third. Shalomanser the Third was the king of Assyria, uh, 858 824 ish BC. Uh, that means we put him here, Shalomanser the Third, before Shalomanser the Fifth, surprisingly, and the Fourth, obviously, in there as well. And he's about here. Um, here uh, is a particular interesting panel from this. Uh, it records various vassal kingdoms and kings uh, giving presents to Shalamansa as their kind of overlord. The vassal, what's uh, It's like, well, you can continue being a king so long as every year you pay some taxes to me. You rule that bit of kingdom, but you're like under king and I'm the big king. But I don't want to manage everything. You know, I'm an ideas guy. You run everything. You run it for me. Mm -hmm. I'm in charge, really. Yeah? Now, this uh, panel here features the earliest ancient depiction of a biblical figure. Jehu, king of Israel from the 9th century, mentioned in 2 Kings, 9 and 10. Here's a close-up. Here he is, bowing down on the floor. And his head there and his arms. Here's his legs. Here's his bottom. <laughs> bowing down on the floor to Shalomancer III. Shalomancer has got his imperial uh, symbol above him, above King Jehu. who's this sort of Star of David kind of symbol, interestingly enough. Um, and the, the, the cuneiform above this, uh, the script above it says, the tribute of Jehu, son of Omri. I receive from him silver, gold, a golden bowl, a golden vase, uh, golden tumblers, golden buckets, tin, a staff for a king and spears. So this is the tribute uh, taxes that King Jehu uh, from Israel gave to me. So it's the earliest portrait of a biblical king that we know of. And there's Jehu. Uh, his, uh, there's a split after David and Solomon of the Israel kingdom between the northern and the southern kingdoms. You get uh, northern Israel kingdom and the southern kingdom of Judah. And there's a split until after the the Babylonian exile, and Jehu was king of the, the northern kingdom, which was this vassal kingdom of the Assyrians, of uh, Shalemazah III. But when Sargon II, king of Assyria, died in 705 BC, these vassal subject states tried to throw off the Assyrian overlords, and Hezekiah, king of Judah, stopped paying the taxes uh, to the Assyrians and entered into a treaty with Egypt, like Egypt, let's let's fight against the Assyrians together. Let's you know back me up here. Uh, but in 703, King Sennacherib, Sargon's son, began various military campaigns to quash this opposition. Now Hezekiah expected the Egyptians to come to his rescue. They didn't. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> so here we have Hezekiah, about 700, about the time of uh, the Book of Isaiah. Uh, Sennacherib here in the Assyrian kingdom that's over the, the northern kingdom here. 
Hezekiah from 2 Kings 18 was 25 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and didn't serve him. Here we have a seal, like the sort of thing you put on a letter to say this is an official document, uh, that says, uh, belonging to Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah. Uh, so a bit of archaeology that mentions Hezekiah. In the 14th year of Hezekiah, Samarachareb, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Uh, the Lachish, you'll see this in the British Museum, the Lachish um, picture from Assyria depicts this military campaign, particularly against the second most important city in Israel, which was Lachish. In 701, it's conquered by Sennacherib, who um, does various unspeakably nasty things to the people there, uh, flaying them alive and things. Um, and he's conquered gradually. He's now having defeated the second biggest city of this tiny little insignificant puny Israelite state, and he's marching on Jerusalem. And then he receives news from home, according to Isaiah. Sennacherib received a report that Tirakaka, the king of Cush, was marching out to fight him. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah with this word. Say to Hezekiah, don't let the God you depend on deceive you when he says Jerusalem will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. In other words, oh, bad news from home. I'm off home to defend my home against this other rebellion. Once I've quashed it, and I will, I'm coming back for you. Again, minimalist said, who the heck is this Tanaka, king of Cush? We've never heard of him. It's just made up. Here he is. <laughs> in the British Museum uh, Tanaka under the protection of his god Amun this is the representation of the god Amun who was his god protector so all of these documents from these different ancient cultures are all about my god's bigger than your god my daddy's going to beat your daddy you know <laughs> my god's bigger than you don't let your god deceive you because my god's bigger than your you know, I, you know, he thinks his god's going to protect him it didn't protect him did it now I'm coming back for you. Don't you think your God's going to protect you? I'm going to kill you. That's, you know, the kind of world they were living in. So he does defeat this guy and he comes back. So Nebuchadnezzar comes back to Israel specifically to finish the job of conquering it. Jerusalem is the only place he hasn't conquered. He comes back specifically to conquer it. He has the bigger army here. This is where you would lay the odds. Isaiah says, here's the prophecy. This is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. He won't come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. He will return by the way he came. He won't enter the city. I will defend the city and save it for the sake of David, my servant. The angel of the Lord went out and put to death some 5,180 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew, returned to Nineveh and stayed there. Didn't come back, according to the Bible. Now, the interesting thing is we have the Babylonian record of this campaign in the British Museum. We showed you the, the Lachish relief about what happened to Lachish. We've got these prophecies. Sennacherib won't attack Jerusalem, even though he's come back specifically to do it. He won't take it. He will return to Nineveh and he won't return. And now I put a conservative odds on this, again, over about one in ten to the five. Here's the archaeology from Lachish. 
which has been studied. Uh, we can see things like the siege ramp that the Assyrians built against the wall, and Isaiah C won't build a siege ramp against Jerusalem. Lachish is a city. Is the, the, that the second city. That yep. was taken. Yeah, this is the one that was taken. Yep. Uh, the, uh, the slingshots, we've got arrows, we've got the archaeology shows there was the battle here at that historical period. And Isaiah says, this won't happen to us. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's no evidence that Sennacherib laid siege to Jerusalem. And that archaeology has been looked for. This is one of the main areas that archaeology does go on. You would expect to see evidence of it if it were there. The Sennacherib prism, the Babylonian record of this account, goes as follows of this, this campaign. As for Hezekiah, the Judite, who did not submit to my yoke, 46 of his strong walled cities I took and conquered and gave to various vassal kings and so on. Um, I besieged and took them, blah, blah, blah. Hezekiah himself in Jerusalem. Like a caged bird, I shut up in Jerusalem. His royal city. I threw up earthworks against him. But this means, I think, they had surrounded the city to kind of try start starving it out of food and so on. This doesn't mean I put a, a, a siege ramp against the wall in order to go in. This just means I, I cut it off. I, I, I hemmed him in like a bird in his cage, saying not I attacked it. The one coming out of the city gate, I turned back to his misery, you see. His cities, which I had despoiled, the ones that he'd already conquered, I cut off from his land and gave them to so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so. That's it. Now, what is the glaring omission from this Babylonian account, especially given the fact that we know that Sennacherib had specifically come back to take Jerusalem? Even the Babylonians don't say they took Jerusalem. Now, ancient kings only record their successes. And they brag. <laughs> and they brag about it. Mm -hmm. they, 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 they use hyperbole. and they, they, People say things like, I went to battle with Israel, and not one of them is left. We killed the whole lot of them. We slaughtered them. And all of the slaves that we'd taken, we sent, uh, and, and you think, hang on a minute, what? you said you killed them all. <laughs> <laughs> and that happens in the biblical accounts of the, of the Canaanite conquest and so on as well, that kind of language. And then talking about the survivors that they're not meant to be any of, and so on. It's just how you talked about warfare at the time. So why this strange omission? Um, that is suspicious at the very least. Not to mention the fact that the Greek um, historian Herodotus, uh, talking about uh, in 400-ish AD, 5th century BC, uh, records a massive destruction of Sennacherib's army at what he calls the entrance to Id Egypt. Remember where Israel is on the map. And he depicted a plague of field mice that chewed up the Assyrians' leather bowstrings <laughs> and the quivers and their shield straps overnight so that they couldn't fight because, you know, like, oh, I can't shoot any arrows. The, the mice have eaten all my bowstrings and I can't hold my shield because the mice have eaten my shield strap and things. And he attributes this destruction of the fighting efficiency of the Sennacherib's army at the entrance to Egypt uh, to divine intervention. Now, 
reading it from a biblical viewpoint, that looks like 500 years later, someone giving a, you know, no, uh, some 300 years later, someone giving a slightly garbled account of Sennacherib's army being defeated in Israel, sent packing, not by being military conquest, but something that was attributable to divine intervention. Um, now, which is more plausible, the angel of the Lord, um, or a whole host of field mice coming and chewing through the everything overnight, whatever, you know, he pays the money, he pay, takes your pick. But there is at least independent historical evidence that something happened to Snarrow army that was really surprising and sent them packing. So we do learn from the extra-biblical evidence that unlike Lachish, contrasted with what happened to Lachish, Sennacherib didn't raise siege ramps against Jerusalem, didn't shoot arrows against it, didn't take it. The army was suddenly rendered impotent without human intervention, at least. He returned to Nineveh and he never returned to finish the job as he had done before, as Isaiah had prophesied. Now, if we take 1 in 10 to the 4 from Jesus's prophecy, 1 in 10 to the 5 from that one, we add that in, multiplying them together, we get up to 10 to the uh, 9 there. So that, that's uh, 1 in a billion odds of getting those prophecies right just by chance, assuming that they're not written after the event. <laughs> and then we have, uh, you'll have Nebuchadnezzar and the time of the uh, Ezekiel and the Babylonian exile. Ezekiel's prophecy about Tyre it was kind of gloating about what happened to, to Jerusalem. Tyre is uh, Kilos on the coast of Lebanon. Yeah. Uh, Ezekiel, completed in the 6th century BC, predicts the fate of the, the seaport city-state of Tyre after the Babylonian exile. And the prophecy, according to the book, in the Bible dates from 586 BC, the 11th year of the reign of King Jehoiakim. And here is the seal of the uh, steward of Jehoiakim, one chap named Eliakim. And again, there's several specific bits to this prophecy. Uh, what happens, he has this, this prophecy about sort of multiple attacks that will take Tyre and wipe it clean and things. And uh, here's a little video about what sort of happens. Nebuchadnezzar and his forces attack. And they, they attack the, 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 the bit of the city that's on the mainland and the bit of the city that's on a, an island about half a mile off the coast uh, surrenders. Uh, but then something else happens later on in history, much later on in history, that really seems to fulfill another part of Ezekiel's prophecy. So we have a sort of before and after maps here. And now the soil, I think, has, has, has grown up around this land bridge that Alexander and his army built out to the island. And you've got this sort of uh, isthmus there now, but it used to be an island just off the, the coast. This is a, as it was at the time, and this is a, a 19th century map of the, the area. And he used that rubble from Nebuchadnezzar's conquest to build this land bridge, because he didn't have his navy with him uh, at the time. Um, so that bit of the prophecy about the rubble being put into the sea and so on uh, was fulfilled 250 years after the prophecy. Um, you might be able to argue about dating the bits of the prophecy about Nebuchadnezzar, um, saying they were written after the time. It's really hard to argue 
that the book of Ezekiel uh, was written uh, 250, over 250 years after when it uh, claims uh, to have done, uh, to have been uh, written. And here's an aerial photo of this uh, isthmus there. Um, he supplants uh, the, 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 the town, so he founds a new city there, and uh, the, that uh, area of Tyre uh, has been used by fishermen as a spot to spread their nets. So again, we have the, these prophecies, which using the convenient number of one in ten, because that makes for a really easy mathematics. If you want to like, you know, half my numbers or whatever, you can do your own back of the envelope calculations. But I think it's still fairly conservative. Give uh, this whole series of prophecies a one in ten to the eight, which would uh, bring us up to one in ten to the seventeen of all of those prophecies being right by chance. Uh, that's one chance in one hundred quadrillion. Or uh, more than, more than your chances of, by luck, opening all four of those combination locks. <laughs> in one five. That would be one in ten to the sixteen. <laughs> yeah. I'm just trying. You're getting multiple tries <laughs> uh, between you to try it. <laughs> so we come to the, the, the Babylonian exile. We've seen what was happening to, to Tyre at the, the same time under Nebuchadnezzar that Ezekiel prophesied about. We have the Babylonian Empire taking over this whole area here at this time. The book of Daniel, again, minimalists have dated it to the second century BC. Uh, but for example, we have found bits of manuscript of the book of Daniel that date from 125-ish BC in Qumran uh, in Israel. And given the time to, to make copies and to spread it around the place and get to Qumran from where it was and so on, that is a pretty good indication that Daniel was written before the second century at least. It's interesting that Greek historians used to ascribe the building of Babylon to one Queen Samuramat, who was Queen Mother in Assyria, and we now know had absolutely nothing to do with the building of Babylon. That was the Greek historians got it wrong. But the Jewish historians got it right. They attributed the building of Babylon, uh, Daniel 4.30, as the king, Nebuchadnezzar, was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. He said, is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? The Bible says Nebuchadnezzar built the place. Archaeology confirms that. We have uh, a brick from Babylon uh, with an inscription about Nebuchadnezzar. Until a century ago... Uh, it was commonly claimed that Nebuchadnezzar had never existed. It was just made up in the Bible, minimus absence of evidence claim. Uh, here's a brick that mentions him. It says, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who cares for Isagel and Azida, gods, eldest son of Nepalozar, king of Babylon. <laughs> there it is uh, in cuneiform. The East India House inscription, uh, uh, again, uh, records Nebuchadnezzar's wish to glorify the god Marduk through building works in the capital. Or the cylinder of Nebuchadnezzar II, a clay cylinder found in Babylon. And again, the cuneiform text describes three palaces that Nebuchadnezzar built for himself in Babylon. So multiple archaeological discoveries about King Nebuchadnezzar, not only about King Nebuchadnezzar, but associating him with massive building projects, just as the book of Daniel says. Now, if you say, oh, the book of Daniel was written late, was written after that, that time... 
How do you account for this accurate knowledge of Babylonian history that the, the Greek historians get wrong? If you put it as a document that comes from Babylon, from the time that this was happening, that's easy to explain. But then it becomes hard to explain the fulfilled prophecies in, in Daniel. But if you explain away the fulfilled prophecies in Daniel by dating Daniel late or whatever, or saying it was just all made up to jolly the, the people along, uh, afterwards looking back, giving them a sense that, oh, coming out of the, the bondage, was all, it was all God's work that we went into bondage and came out, you know, everything's on track really, guys, or whatever. Uh, then it becomes very hard to explain away this accurate historical knowledge and various other bits uh, in there. The cuneiform tablet, uh, part of the Babylonian chronicle, uh, gives a sort, of, it's a sort of calendar diary of, of major events. Um, and it notes about, uh, in this particular one, notes about Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had ceased to pay tribute. Nebuchadnezzar's army besieged Jerusalem. Uh, the new king of Judah, Jehoiakim, was captured and carried off to Babylon. A series of expeditions to Syria, blah, blah, blah. And this Jehoiakim, who uh, was the king and is now sort of uh, in captivity in Babylon, is even mentioned in, in sort of prosaic records about um, 1.5 litres of sesame oil to be given to Jehoiakim, king of Judah. He, was, he had a sort of uh, allowance uh, from the, the king uh, for four litres of sesame oil for eight men of Judah and so on. Just these sort of uh, accounting records uh, mention the things that are mentioned uh, in the Bible. Um, again, uh, I like him, uh, steward of Jehoiakim on the Babylonian side. Recent discovery from the British Museum in 2007. Uh, the guy came across this little tablet which he noticed had the name Nabusurukin, the chief eunuch of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And he went, hang on, I know that name. And goes to the Bible and he finds uh, that the Bible mentions uh, the very same uh, chief eunuch of Nebuchadnezzar. And there is a little inscription about him. Now, you know the story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Unfortunately, I don't have any evidence showing that that famous story about them being thrown into the fiery furnace and so on is true. Um, that would be quite hard to get evidence that showed that kind of event happened. But... It is interesting to note that we do know that execution by burning was a typical practice in Babylon. And we do have a clay prison found in Babylon listing various officials of the government. And remember that the, you know, the, the, the young men had been taken out of the Jewish education system, indoctrinated into the Babylonian education system to be used as civil servants, basically. And that's what happened to Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And this, this clay prison from Babylon names um, these three. Hananiah's name is given in the Babylonian equivalent of Hananiah, Hananu, and not the recorded change of name in Daniel, which was Shadrach, his Babylonian name. Um, but the other two, uh, we have uh, Meshach and Abednego as names in this list. Now, it's very hard to prove that those are the same three guys as mentioned in the Bible. But what it does at least show is that the names of people given in the Bible were the kind of names that people had in Babylon at that time. And in a world before archaeology and before the 
Wikipedia and, <laughs> and so on. That's the kind of detail about a culture that it's really hard to get right unless you're on the ground at the time writing about it. Um, for example, if you compare uh, the names of people given to people in the Gospels, and, and the, you can look at the percentage frequency of names like Mary and Martha and James and, and so on, and compare that to the records we can compile from these ossuary inscriptions on the bone boxes of burials, you can show that the, the name frequency of characters in the Gospels matches very closely to the name frequency you can work out independently from archaeological evidence. Whereas if you look at the Gnostic Gospels from the 2nd and 3rd century, they get it completely wrong. Because they're not historical documents from the time. They're written by Greeks um, a century after the fact, and they don't have archaeology, and, they don't, and no one's compiled a list, and they just make up the names because they're making it up, and they get it wrong. <laughs> um, so again, here's sort of historical information within the book of Daniel that it's hard to account for unless the book of Daniel, as it says it does, was written during the Babylonian exile. Now, Daniel and the lion's den, or Daniel and the lion reserve, again, I can't prove from archaeology that Daniel was put into the lion's den. It would be nice to dig up a Babylonian record of, <laughs> of that happening, and who knows, we may one day dig that up. Or maybe no one made a record of it, or maybe they did, but it's been destroyed. But what we do know is that uh, in ancient Assyria, lion hunting was considered the sport of kings. And they used to keep reserves of lions in the way that you know, ancient British monarchs used to keep forests to go um, deer hunting in. Well, Assyrian kings kept lion reserves. So it's not at all surprising when the Bible says as a form of execution, they tossed Daniel into the lion's den. Uh, so the hungry lions will kill, kill what, Why on earth has this king got a bunch of lions? Well, because they did. <laughs> we know that from extra-biblical evidence. And again, would you know that kind of thing in a world without you know, archaeology and, and records and so on if you're writing in a different culture several hundred years removed from those uh, events? So here you can see you can see that the lions here coming out of their cage, the lion's den maybe, and running around and then shooting arrows at the, the lions and this one's uh, twisting and the very dramatic stuff. So here we have the time of Daniel, and you'll you know the name Belshazzar, Belshazzar's Feast. Famous bit of music about Belshazzar's Feast and so on. The writing on the wall at Belshazzar's Feast. Yeah. Um, Daniel 5.29 puzzled people for a long time. Then at Belshazzar's command, when he gets Daniel in to explain this mysterious vision they've had, Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. So Belshazzar's the king, and he's just made Daniel the third highest in the kingdom. Why not the second highest? That's a bit bit of a puzzle. And also, who the heck's this Belshazzar folk? There's no evidence of Belshazzar, king of, of, of Babylon, outside the Bible. It's probably just made... Yeah, you see where this argument is going. <laughs> but now we have things like the Cylinder of Nabodonus, which mentions King Nabodonus here of uh, 
Babylon, King Nabonidus, mentions his co-regent, Belshazzar, my firstborn son, the offspring of my heart. They had a co-regency. They were both king. And of course, the older, the elder king would have been first among equals. But what, what we know from the records, we have cuneiform temple receipts from Sippar showing that um, Belshazzar presenting animals as an offering of the king and so on. And it seems from Babylonian records that the, that the highest king, Nabonidus, had got particularly sort of religious at this point. And he was off, like, worshipping the Babylonian gods and sort of saying, I'm going to go and worship the gods for a bit. I mean, you know, I'm going on retreat or whatever. I leave Babylon in your hands. You're, you're in charge. You're king. But, you know, you're not top dog. You're like one of these vassal kings, kind of we've talked about before. But, you know, I'm your father. I'm still king, but I don't want to be bothered, you know, unless it's really urgent, whatever. And, and so we have extra biblical evidence for the existence of Belshazzar and an explanation from that extra biblical evidence of why it would have been that Belshazzar could only make someone the third highest position in the land rather than the second highest. It's because, although he was king of Babylon, he was the second highest king of Babylon because his father was the first. And so that extra biblical information sort of resolves that puzzle in Daniel that's not explained in Daniel. Now, again, if you're making up a story like this after the event, unless you want to say oh, it's a really clever double bluff, <laughs> which makes your explanation more ad hoc, it's like, why would you make up a story that has this sort of obvious weirdness to it that you don't bother explaining? The third. Yeah, yeah. Wouldn't, if you were making it up, you would say something like, and, and Belshazzar, who uh, was reigning in Babylon in, in the temporary absence of his father, who was off doing blah, 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 um, and was therefore the second king, made Daniel the third highest in the kingdom. The fact that it's not explained, that I think the simplest explanation of that is it just takes for granted that the people who were going to be reading this book would have known what the explanation was. It just, it's just assumed knowledge. I mean, if I were all to say, you know, say something to you about um, you know, Prince Charles this week uh, elevated uh, Sir Lord Thingamajig of somewhere to the, th to, to the third in line to the throne. Well, I wouldn't explain to you. And of course, you all know that Prince Charles, being a prince, is only second in, uh, first in line to the, the throne, and of course the queen, and then and whatever, whatever position I'd said. You just know that background knowledge about there's the Queen and then there's the Prince Charles, his first line, and then there's Prince Andrew and, and all of this. Did, so, did, uh, this seal is in the museum. Yeah. So um, we, we can see it. <laughs> so here we have uh, Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah at this uh, time here, just before the Babylonian exile. Now, it talks here about uh, Jehoiakim, the king of Judah. During those dark days, uh, Jeremiah prophesied that the people of Judah would be captive in Babylonia for 70 years. Some people take that literally. Some people just take that as a, a long but finite period of time. He's, he's at the very least saying, you're going to exile in Babylon, but it won't last forever. You will come back to the promised land as a prophecy. You, know, you won't be permanently in exile. And Jeremiah's messages were recorded by a man named Burak, son of Neriah, as recorded in Jeremiah 36. 
Now, among these, again, boule, we have the, the uh, Bethlehem boule. Here we have another uh, boule seal impression. Uh, come to light in Jerusalem, one that reads, Belonging to Burakiah, son of Neriah, the scribe. So this is a, a, the seal impression of Jeremiah the prophet's scribe who wrote the prophecies of Jeremiah down for him. Baruch. Baruch. Baruch, son of Neriah. Um, this seal impression was made by Jeremiah's colleague, the man who physically wrote the book of Jeremiah. And you know, here is a physical link to him. Now, of course, we do know that that prophecy did come true, that the Babylonian exile didn't last forever. It could have done. It's a risky prediction. Um, when uh, King Cyrus of Persia, of the Persian Empire, conquers the Babylonian Empire, uh, he then uh, gives this edict. We have this, uh, uh, again, another uh, one of these sort of barrels with inscriptions around it in the British Museum, I think. And it says here, King Cyrus talking first person. It's a bit of propaganda to sort of legitimise him taking over the kingdom, basically. And it says, I entered Babylon as a friend. You know, conquering him. I entered as a friend and establishing my royal residence in the palace of the princes. And jubilation and rejoicing. Everyone's really happy that I've conquered you. You're really happy that I've conquered you, aren't you? Yes. My numerous troops walked around Babylon in peace. I bet there was peace. There's so many troops walking around the hills of it. No, no, I know there's lots of troops, but it's all peaceful because you're all really happy that I've taken over, aren't you? Uh, my numerous troops bragging, you know. I also restored to the cities on the other side of the Tigris their hitherto long ruined temples. Talking about the people that I've conquered, I let them rebuild their cities and their temples. I also gathered up the, what, their one time inhabitants and returned them to their homelands. His policy was to return the people that Babylon had conquered to their homelands, although they would still be sort of vassal states to him. But I'll make everyone really grateful that I've conquered by saying, it's good that I've conquered because I've let you go home and rebuild Book of Nehemiah and so on. So here's an account from the Persian side of what happens, why uh, you have the events of the Book of Nehemiah. Uh, and so on. And of course, as prophesied, another improbability to add to our, what was it, 1 in 10 to the 17 that we'd got to just on those, uh, those four, three or four prophecies. We call it Kyros. We need some oxygen in just a few minutes. Yeah. yeah. Luke, uh, I'm going to finish in just a few slides anyway, so that'll have time. Yeah. yeah. Now, the key question when looking at this, I think, is exactly... Does the prophecy that you're looking at date from before the event? Has it just been written after the fact or not? And I say, you've got to look at the dating, and I think the best place to start, this is a really good book by Craig Davis called Dating the Old Testament. Goes through book by book, looking at the arguments for the dating of the Old Testament books. He's got a website at uh, datingtheoldtestament.com where you can find a lot of that material as well. So it does what it says on the packet. <laughs> And the, the key thing is to follow the evidence for the dating uh, without um, predetermining the outcome of that, that investigation by the philosophical assumption that anything with a successful, apparently successful prophecy in it must be written after the event because miracles can't happen. Um, 
But I think if you do that and you, you, you follow the, the, the evidence is for these prophecies being written beforehand, and then you have to deal with, well, do you just say, oh, these prophets and this line of prophecies that we have, the, this, and it's a connected line of prophecies. It's, it's not just random people making random prophecies. It's prophecies from Jewish prophets that come true. It's not prophecies from... You know, it's not specific prophecies from Babylonian prophets that come true. They all make general Barnum statement, uh, you know, star sign kind of prophecies. Prophecies from prophets outside of Israel tend to be things like, um, the prophet says the king really had give a lot of sheep to the temple so that we can slaughter them. And if you do that, then everything will go well for you in your next battle which is fairly safe to prophesy, because if things don't go well for you in the next battle, the king's probably going to be dead anyway. You know? <laughs> but in the meantime, your temple gets a lot of sheep. <laughs> you know? And they, they tend to be kind of self-serving, bigging up the, the power of the, the prophets and so on, up against the monarchy, and giving you know, not risky predictions. There the, will be a victory. There will be a victory! I, yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, and the, the king takes it once. Ambiguous, back to our logic, ambiguous statements and so on. Whereas the, the Jewish line of Jewish prophets, and particularly, of course, there's this whole specific sequence of prophecies about more and more detailed information about the Messiah and where he'll come from and what he will do and what he will be like and what tribe and what clan and where he will be born and so on. Over hundreds and hundreds of years of history. And the more of these linked series of suspicious events you get, the more and more probable it, it becomes that at least some of those apparently miraculous events really are miraculous. And if some of them really are miraculous, it becomes more probable that the whole thing, that that context that you get when you get into the New Testament times of successful Old Testament prophecy, and you have prophecies about Jesus and prophecies made by Jesus in that tradition of city prophecies of Jewish prophets and so on that, that, that you know the, the finger of God is involved here uh, in some way and that is the better explanation of the fulfillment of very long odds of this series of specific prophecies than saying oh they were lucky <laughs> how many of the padlocks have you managed to open Anyone got an open one? No. 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 Oh well. There you go. <laughs> well, it's just an accident that we didn't. Well, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, what you make of fulfilled prophecy aspect of the Bible passages we've examined will depend mainly on the worldview, the philosophy you bring to the investigation. But even if you set aside the question of prophecy, what we have at least seen is that this archaeological evidence shows that in these specific cases, the Bible presents us with reliable accounts of what happened in history. But the more evidence you have that the Bible presents you with reliable accounts of what happened in history, the harder it becomes to say that the Bible isn't giving you a reliable account of what happened in history when it presents you with stories about this prophet at this time made this prediction. Because you've got evidence that the Bible gives you reliable history. And so that gives you more confidence that in the bits of history that you can't independently check, it's probably reliable as well. And those bits of history include the, the historical claims that there were, were prophecies, specific prophecies made 
long before events that then turned out the way that were prophesied. So if you, if you start by setting aside the whole pr prophecy aspect of things, the more the evidence tells you that the Bible knows what it's talking about when it talks about the names, the customs, the who built what in Babylon, etc., etc., the harder it becomes to dismiss the biblical prophecies as inaccurate, made up later, and so on. <laughs>